0: the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. It's often said that the states are the laboratories of democracy, and so I suppose it's good to pause from time to time and take stock of the results. In recent years, we've seen more and more debates over the power of prosecutors to bring cases, but also to not bring cases, and the implications of a prosecutor's announcement that he or she will exercise discretion in one way or another. And of course, uh, other parts of government, especially governors, have reacted as well, sometimes calling these prosecutors to account either rightly or wrongly. And the most recent example, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, issued an executive order removing a prosecutor after he had signed a statement of principles uh, declaring his intentions how, how to or how not to enforce the law. So we'd like to talk a little bit about that, but more importantly, we'd like to talk more broadly about the state of these debates nationwide and also how the state debates might inform federal debates. And on this issue, there's literally nobody better to be our guest today than Rachel Barco. Rachel is the vice dean and Charles Seligson professor of law at NYU. She directs the law school's Peter Zimroth Center on the Administration of Criminal Law. And as you might gather from those titles, uh, her scholarship focuses on constitutional law, administrative law, and criminal law. And she's one of the nation's leading experts on criminal law and policy. I highly recommend her book, Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. Rachel, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, thanks for taking the time to talk
0: with me. And we're also joined, of course, by my colleague, the Gray Center's Research Director, Chase Linkton. Chase, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me, Adam. I'm excited to talk today.
0: Well, why don't we start, Chase, you and I, with uh, with what happened in Florida. I, I just mentioned passing Ron DeSantis' executive order uh, on removing this prosecutor. Can you describe for our listeners in a little detail what happened?
2: Sure. It looks like this Hillsborough County State Attorney, uh, Andrew Warren, uh, joined with some other progressive prosecutors around the country, just stating his intention that as uh, Florida and some of these other states pass laws about um, abortion policy or medical procedures for people suffering from gender dysphoria, he was not going to enforce any criminal penalties associated with those laws. And in response, uh, the governor, Ron DeSantis, issued an executive order saying that um, since Warren has effectively nullified or at least expressed an intention to nullify certain laws in his district that uh, based on the constitutional authority in the governor of Florida uh, that he was going to suspend him. Now, Warren has sued DeSantis. In response, saying that DeSantis's order uh, violates the freedom of speech because Warren hadn't uh, rejected any cases yet. He just said that if it were up to him, he would not prosecute in those areas. And I think the litigation's ongoing and there could be at least an initial ruling in the next couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting case. It was filed in, I think, the Northern District of Florida, so federal court since it's the constitutional claim. Uh, Governor DeSantis, when he suspended the prosecutor, he he did it in the form of a ten-page executive order, uh, and which also attached this the statement that um, uh, that the prosecutor had signed. And there is sort of an interesting wrinkle. I'll just notice. Al- I'll note along the way. And, and Jace, I think you alluded to it briefly too, is the fact that. While uh, Mr. Warren had, had announced, had joined the statement saying that, that he would not, um, uh, the, the, I guess the quote here is, we pledge to use our settled discretion and limited resources on enforcement of laws that will not erode the safety and well-being of our community, uh, and we do not support the use of scarce criminal justice and law enforcement resources on criminalization of doctors who, med- who offer medically necessary, safe, gender-affirming care to trans youth, and, and it continues from there. And interestingly, Desantis's executive order says right away, uh, Florida has not enacted any such laws. Uh, mm-hmm. But then adds the statement proves that that Mr. Warren uh, would not w- is 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 ill suited for the office because he preemptively decides these sorts of, of issues. Well, the case is pending. I know some amicus briefs were filed, and we'll keep an eye out for what happens next. But I'm very interested, Rachel, to hear your general thoughts on the issue. Maybe not in detail on this case, but just in general, what does this case reflect current trends? Is it an outlier? How should we think about where things stand right now in the debates around prosecutors at the state level?
1: I, I situate it this way. So for decades, um, you know, last 50 years, 60 years, We haven't really seen conflicts between state level actors and local prosecutors for the most part, because I think they've all been on the same page. You know, basically, they had a playbook that you win elections by being tough on crime and local prosecutors are tough on crime. (laughs) You know, your state governors express their toughness on crime, state legislators. And so in an environment like that, we haven't really had very many issues where they'd be disagreeing with each other. And as a result of that, you have state level actors who would speak favorably about local prosecutors having discretion, because um, it's easy to say I'm comfortable with somebody having discretion if I like the way they're exercising it. And I think the big shift that we've seen and, you know, I would say it's um, five last five years, maybe a little bit longer, but it's it's pretty recent um, is there's been. A concerted effort to elect a different kind of district attorney. Um, it was an organized effort. There have been criminal justice reformers who kind of looked at the conservative movement's approach to school boards and the way that you could kind of look at a local body to kind of shift how policy gets made. And they realized that um, local prosecutors are really in charge of a whole lot of criminal justice policy with their discretion. And so there's been this movement to elect a different kind of prosecutor. Um, You know, sometimes they label themselves progressive or decarceral, but I think it's safe to call them prosecutors who are not in this tough on crime mold, right? They are prosecutors who are interested in tackling mass incarceration, finding other solutions to crime besides just longer sentences. And so as this movement has taken hold, now we're starting to see those tensions between state-level actors all of a sudden saying, why does this local elected prosecutor have so much authority, right? They were fine with it for decades when they shared their vision. But as soon as you start to see that shift in, in views between the two of them, the tension has started to emerge. And so, you know, I would put the Ron DeSantis-Warren uh, dispute in a, in that big overall umbrella. So it would be the same thing we see in uh, Pennsylvania with attacks on larry krasner the district attorney in philadelphia all kinds of pushback at the state level on him like they want to enact turn limits for the district attorney in philadelphia like only in philadelphia <laughs> no other local prosecutor i mean is as targeted as you can possibly get <laughs> um, you know we see similarly um other states around the country as these this new model of prosecutors been elected all of a sudden, state legislators want to pass different kinds of laws. Um, and similarly, by the way, we also saw it with the defund the police movement. So as you started to get the momentum to think about defunding the police, um, some state legislatures passed laws or proposed laws that would limit the ability of a local community to decrease their police budget. So you know, I put all of that in the same big bucket that is basically we're now starting to see local communities with a different outlook on criminal justice policies than state level actors. And so I think those tensions are only going to increase um, and grow more partisan. Um, and so this is really something that I don't think is a one off. I think it's part of the trend and I think it's going to be broader. Yeah.
0: Before, I'll let Jace jump in in a moment, but just to add on that a couple of things, um, you, you pointed out how the prosecutorial debates, you know, they mirror in some ways or echo the debates around school boards. And, and for what it's worth, I live in the, the the briefly famous Loudoun County, Virginia, which suddenly was like the bleeding Kansas of the school board debates for about four months. Um, it also has arisen in an era where there's more and more debates about enforcement discretion in the agencies, right? The, the debates about waivers and, and so on. Um, uh, your your colleague at NYU, Richard Epstein, once wrote a paper called Government by Waiver. And this is sort of the debates going back the last few years. So that's been happening. And I'd also point out that, you know, we should, our, our listeners should keep in mind that criminal law is really geared from the ground up and in many, many respects geared towards, um, geared away from, from finding guilt, right? Uh, that, that, defendants have any number of procedural and substantive protections for a reason in the Constitution from the ground up. Um, also, it's hard to imagine the, the the politicization of public defenders happening in the same way as prosecutors, right? It's, it's impossible to imagine a campaign to make defenders Sort of less eager to defend certain criminals right they have they have legal duties like all lawyer, like all of us lawyers do so it's not as though they can sort of use discretion in the same way again because enforcement discretion on the prosecutorial side from the ground up i mean it serves a few purposes but one of them is to err on the side of of innocence or on non-prosecution and so there's a lot in the system already that's intended to protect these things. And I think one of the things that's challenging about the debates around prosecutors is the tools that are being used by these prosecutors. And I'll be honest, I would probably disagree with them on some of their policy judgments. But at the end of the day, you know, it is a good I think it's a good thing for prosecutors to have this measure of discretion. To some extent, the question is just how does it fit into the into the broader system? Did I get anything wrong in there? Does that sound about right?
1: I I think think that's That you're right that the idea that prosecutors have this discretion is really important. I mean, we don't want mandatory enforcement of every law in all cases, right? We it's it's really critical that we recognize that when you pass a law, you're not envisioning all the circumstances where it could apply, all the ways that knowledge changes over time. There's a variety of reasons why you want a real human being to assess particulars in a case and decide whether to move forward. And so enforcement discretion is critical. um, And it's also critical because we have really severe resource limits on these offices. We don't fund anywhere near uh, what you would need to fund to have full enforcement of any law. So by definition, every office is operating on a prioritization basis. And so that means that you, every time you elect a prosecutor, you have to know they will not enforce all the laws in your jurisdiction. They will not. You haven't funded it as a taxpayer. You haven't even come close to funding it as a taxpayer. Um, And I don't think you'd want to because There's all kinds of cases where once you see the facts, you really recognize that that would be, you know, there'd be like a biblical story proving the lesson as to why you shouldn't apply a, a given law in a certain circumstance. And so, um, so prosecutors have always had this discretion. And so it is a little bit, um, I think disingenuous and, um, kind of silly for, A state-level actor to make the complaint, they must enforce all laws, um, because they don't. Um, And so a more honest debate is really one that says they've chosen not to enforce law X. I think law X is great. They think law X is stupid. And the next time you vote, Vote for each of us based on what you personally think about law X. But, you know, instead, it ends up taking that these debates like the DeSantis-Warren one become these more abstract kinds of things, like, well, he's not doing his job um, by not enforcing this law. And that's just not true, um, you know, for the reasons you said and that it's not even an issue yet in Florida. <laughs> um, but, but even if it were he doesn't have the funding to enforce every law. So every day he's going to have to make choices about which laws he wants to focus on and which ones not. I mean, you know, do you want maximum enforcement of jaywalking laws in your jurisdiction? You know, you could have a governor that says, I need to remove this prosecutor because, you know, jaywalking is rampant and he doesn't bring any of these cases um, because no prosecutor does. So, So I think the debate now is a little bit silly if it becomes one that's is about, you know, oh, we have prosecutors who aren't enforcing the law. What it really should be about is, in a world of limited resources, how do you want your prosecutor to prioritize various crimes and crime strategies?
0: Yeah, but just to elaborate one last part of what you said, uh, prosecutorial discretion, in one sense, is focused on particulars, um, it becomes a little bit more challenging when a prosecutor adopts either explicitly or, or implicitly something that's a little less particular, right? And 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 that's one of the things that Governor DeSantis points to in 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 the executive order is that this is that this statement that that Mr. Warren signed isn't a isn't a, a sort of a, a pledge to use. Enforcement discretion on a particularized basis. He's brought. He's making a broader judgment about a class of cases. Of course, that that exists in in day to day life as it is. Thank goodness, or I'd have more speeding tickets. Right. Most uh, most most sheriffs they probably don't have an explicit policy about how many miles over the speed limit I have to go, but there is sort of an implicit policy. And but it's the it's that that difference between the particularized judgments and the broader judgments that complicates things a little bit.
1: No, I think that's right. I think that, you know, saying that there's an entire category of laws that you'll never enforce, tees this up in a way that's different from just, in general, I'm going to focus on A as opposed to B. Um, you know, the tension is that there's a benefit of having a prosecutor make it very clear, because for democratic accountability, you know, it's kind of nice, actually, to have you're, you're about to vote and you know full well, Okay, if, if candidate A just kind of generally says, you know, okay, generally... I'm not going to prioritize marijuana possession enforcement. Um, and can, you know, the, the other candidate says, I categorically will not prosecute marijuana cases, right? It could be that both of them are going to do the exact same thing if they're elected into office, but you're not really sure about that first one when you're voting. And so the, the prosecutors and the people who are running for office make very clear what they plan to do. I think we do get the benefit of having the voters decide up or down they like that or they don't like that. And so we have had campaigns recently with prosecutors stating very clearly, I'm not gonna prosecute these cases. And then when those they're voted into office, you know, you can take some, I mean, I think there's something to be said for the fact that the voters agreed with that. And so that's got that kind of democratic approval of it. Whereas the other approach, you know, and I I can give you examples of that, like you know, at the federal level now, we've had these memos where the Department of Justice has said, you know, marijuana enforcement, you know, it, it, it is still a crime um, to possess steal, and marijuana. It's a federal crime. It remains as such. Um, but we've had these memos that DOJ has issued that basically say, Probably we're, you know, we're not going to prioritize those cases. We're probably not going to look at them if there's, unless there's these facts. You know, and as a practical matter, the, it, we can have an entire regime of legalized marijuana in multiple states across the country and not have the federal government come in and interfere with it. But the memo itself doesn't say that. And so there is a kind of uncomfortable dishonesty about not coming out and just being very clear that categorically we're not going to do something but as you said it does have the virtue of leaving some room in an individual case if you need to to say no you know i might do it sometimes and i am going to do you know case by case so one more example i'll I'll give you which you may or may not know about so this issue came up in virginia in their courts where their courts said that um It was unlawful for prosecutors to kind of categorically decide they weren't going to bring cases. Um, But then you get into this kind of weird separation of powers issue, because effectively what the judge is insisting on is that the prosecutor individually decide. Um, And there's nothing to stop the prosecutor from kind of individually, case by case, saying, oh, look at this case of you know marijuana possession. I'm not going to prosecute it. Here's another one. I'm not going to prosecute it. You know, here's another one. And so you get to the same place, but with this weird kabuki theater aspect of making the the prosecutor look at each one. so I'm not sure that's better, but, but you're certainly right. That is what's different about this. It's the idea of categorically taking something off the table versus allowing yourself room individually to say, well, I'm going to see, probably not, but I'm going to leave myself the wiggle room to, to someday say there might be a case where I would bring it.
0: I noticed that when a group of legal scholars filed an amicus brief in the Florida case, their very first argument is exactly the one you identified, that that uh, state attorney Warren's transparency as to his policy views properly promotes electoral accountability consistent with uh, ethical and professional standards. So that's that's what they're leading with in that amicus brief. Uh, Chase, as usual, I'm talking too much. Why don't you jump in?
2: Yeah, no worries. Along those same lines, I was going to ask about blanket statements of prosecution. Prosecutorial discretion versus case by case. But I had in mind some of those fights in California and elsewhere where specifically property crimes um, were involved. And it seems like, uh, and I don't know what the breakdown is as far as the size of these populations, but it looks like there's a pretty even split uh, between people who want those crimes prosecuted and then those who. Are trying to solve some of the mass incarceration problems you've identified uh, by not prosecuting property crimes. Um, What is your sense of that debate? I mean, we see sensational headlines everywhere, but what has been the impact of some of those policies?
1: Yeah, so you know, it varies jurisdiction by jurisdiction what people actually want, and I don't know the specifics of that one. Um, You know, I can give you. I think it's a good example, though, to highlight that this doesn't have a liberal conservative lean, there's no reason it should. So if you go back to mask mandates, for example, there were a bunch of sheriffs in particular, but it could just as easily, you know, prosecutors too, who said, if my state is going to pass a mask mandate, I will not enforce it. (laughs) You know, I won't enforce it. I won't bring charges. So you can imagine this running either in a more traditionally liberal or a traditionally conservative direction you know and it really does depend on the kind of crime we're thinking of prosecuting right you have prosecutor wants to get up there and say i'm um you know i'm never going to prosecute wage theft or something you know <laughs> these things could be more politically conservative or liberal um and so for something like retail theft that was a i'm more familiar with when it came up in boston so um the election there for the Suffolk County District Attorney when Rachel Rollins was running, she had said, I'm just not gonna prosecute these low-level theft cases, right? The office has bigger concerns. Um, We have a really, um, uh, a problem with violence in Suffolk County and I'm gonna prioritize those cases because I think that's what the community cares about the most. Um, So again, it's not like, you can't just say, do you care about theft or not? It's, It's more with these limited resources if i'm telling you i'm going to focus on the theft cases it's going to by definition mean i can't bring as many of my prosecutors in some of these cases involving violence and so her campaign was effectively i'm going to prioritize the violence cases um and she was elected on that basis and you know and that's what she did um you know as it, and as it turned out the results were pretty good in her jurisdiction in terms of you know crime rates and and the the effectiveness of the strategy but there the voters decided you know, yeah, I like the way you're prioritizing things. So the thing I would look for in California, which I don't have, you know, I don't know the data and I don't have the specific knowledge of would be kind of, if you do make those death cases a priority, what aren't you bringing? Um, you know, uh, because, it's just not true that you have unlimited resources to do it all. And so my guess is it's more a matter of prioritization. Um, And it's also probably a question of, are there other strategies that are more effective for some of these problems, right? Because, you know, for any given criminal activity or any regulatory area, you know, I always try to, think about like you can do the X post, I'm going to punish you for doing it. Or you can think ex ante, what are the ways I could create incentives for you not to do this thing in the first place? Now, so, you know, for something like retail theft, you know, so I live in New York and, you know, good luck getting a product at a CVS here. Like if you want like a toothbrush uh, or do you want a deodorant, you know, it's behind a lock case. You got to press the button. You got to wait for the person to come to unlock it for you. Um, so they've clearly decided that the way they're going to deal with retail theft here is basically to put their entire store under lock and key and you, you get your products that way. So I. Uh, you know, one other question when we have these kinds of issues is: is that the better way to deal with things, or is the better way to deal with things? You're going to have prosecutions, you're going to send a message of deterrence through punishment. And generally speaking, I mean, it's not universal, but generally speaking, resources are better spent on the prevention side of things um, as opposed to using punishment because that, as it turns out, with, with actors, they don't think they're going to get caught anyway. They don't really think so much about the, the length of punishment. And so it's much better to either increase how you're going to detect when the violation happens, you know, more cameras, tighter security, or just harden targets in the first place so that the activities don't happen.
2: That was going to be my follow up. I was wondering if you had a preference between hardening, like putting everything behind glass versus um, getting more frontline enforcement so that it seems like in these criminal justice debates, the big fight is over whether the punishment is certain. So if it's going to have a deterrent effect, the potential criminal would have to know if I do this, this is the penalty I'm going to have to face instead of, oh, maybe in a few years, hopefully without pretrial detention, I might have to be held accountable. Is that Which, I think you answered it a little bit, but which approach would you prefer? Because it also seems weird, especially when we're having debates about stuff like food deserts. If retailers and other companies don't want to be in an area, that seems like it would harm the community a lot, Um, even as too high of an incarceration rate harms the community as well. How do you make that choice?
1: Yeah, I mean, the data is really very clear on length of sentence doing almost nothing to deter crime. <laughs> so, um, so you know, if we're just going with being as rational as we can, um, you're much better off investing your resources in prevention. And so, and prevention can include, you know, it, the, the calculus between length of punishment and odds of detection. You're better off spending your resources on detecting things, um, uh, you know, however you do that. It doesn't have to be policing. There could be other things you do to increase the odds because the kind of would-be person thinking about a crime places way more emphasis on will I get caught than what will happen to me if I do. And so you really want to um, increase the the odds of detection in terms of your resource allocation. Um, and then on the kind of prevention side, that's related to it, right? If you make it so hard to do, you're clearly going to get caught if what you're trying to do is like you know i don't know break through that <laughs> that case in the middle of CBS. you know you can't do it like it, it's effectively um it, it's it's an effective strategy you know that's why car thefts um have dropped dramatically in the united states it's just like you can't steal a car the way you used to be able to steal a car because technology improves so much um ditto with cell phones you know there was um there was like lots of cell phones that uh, thefts, but then as they figure out how to find people's phones and trace them, like so, there's there's things you can do to make certain things less likely to happen, and it's almost always the better investment than lengthening a sentence, because the kind of would-be perpetrator is just not saying, oh, well, it was two years, but now it's four, so I'm out. Like, that that just doesn't really work. And unfortunately, our politics are such that the easiest thing for a politician to do is just raise a sentence, right? They come out there and they get their press conference, oh, we're getting super tough on this issue. You know, there's a new sentence now, it's 20 years. Um, but But the data shows that that doesn't really help. So, so I'm definitely in the prevention, figuring out ways. And, you know, it's it's not to say that it's easy to prevent certain kinds of things from happening. Um, you know, and a lot of those investments are societal investments, like, you know, big, big investments. Like, you know, we would have a lot less crime if we invested more in schools um, and in healthcare care <laughs> um, and in infrastructure. And, and that's. Does bear fruit in terms of crime reduction, but there's a whole politics around making those kinds of investments that I know it's, it's trickier to get the public to want to spend money on that than it is to just say, we're going to increase sentences. And then there's much more voter willingness to put money behind that.
0: Now, you've written a lot about this in recent years. I already mentioned the book, um, Prisoners of Politics. Uh, you also had a, an article in, I think it was the Michigan Law Review, maybe, um, a, a review of Emily Bazelon's. Uh, book on mass incarceration, and that article, which we'll link in the show notes, is called "Can Prosecutors End Mass Incarceration?" So we'll link to that. Uh, but let's talk a little bit now about governors, um, I and mean, we'll move on to the federal analogies in a bit. But maybe just a few thoughts on on how you see the the relationship between governors and um, and prosecutors. Although I suppose at the state level, these issues probably vary from state to state um, in structure. So it might not necessarily be just governors; it could be other sort of supervisory or uh, or superseding authorities. Uh, how do you tend to see those issues, those structural issues in the states, and how should we think about them?
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting because it's really a big question of how you how you want to design your government, right? It's, it's like a really big question of federalism and localism, um, and you know whether you you have a preference for higher levels of governance or more, a more hyper local, you know, more community based kind of accountability and state by state, it varies. Uh, so some states give their governors, um, or their attorney general, um, more authority to supervise or control local prosecutors. Um, and others, most, um, don't really do that. And they follow a model where the local prosecutor is pretty much, um, independent and operates their own little within their district you know they're pretty much in charge and the state the ability of a state level actor to intervene is pretty limited you know and and it's set out usually um by statute where the legislature will just say, you know, the attorney general can bring cases in these areas, you know, and there's some common ones like um, public corruption, or if there's a conflict with the local prosecutor, um, you know, you don't want the local prosecutor investigating their own family member or something. Um, But it it does vary by state in terms of how much centralized control there is. And there's a fair number of states that actually on the books, give a state-level actor, whether the governor or state AG, actually a lot of authority. They could be stepping in and actually doing quite a bit. Um, But in practice, they have traditionally not done so much. And that kind of goes back to how I, I started our conversation, which was for decades, we didn't see that there was this that this even existed because there was no reason for it to happen because they everybody just agreed you know the local prosecutor was doing stuff that made state level actors happy everyone was running on these tough on crime campaigns and so i think we will see more of this now where state level actors will be unhappy with something that a local prosecutor is doing or um or and or they will think i can get some political you know mojo out of criticizing this local actor and they'll start to look for hey do I have authority to do something about this like what could I do and what they will find if they look in a lot of states is yeah they can strip that local prosecutor of authority or more likely they could have their state AG go ahead and bring the cases that the local prosecutor is not bringing so again to go back to Philadelphia where um state-level actors in Pennsylvania have not liked Larry Krasner, there is authority in Pennsylvania for the attorney general to bring cases. And so the state AG has basically said, I'm going to bring the gun cases that Larry Krasner won't bring. Um, And, you know, you could see that, I think, in states as well, you know, whether the issue turns out to be enforcing um, anti-abortion laws or it's guns or it's marijuana or whatever it is. If you had a local prosecutor who didn't want to bring the charges, but you have a state AG, who has statutory authority, basically, to pick and choose whatever cases to bring, they can do it. Now, your question is a little more fundamental. Like, if I were designing a state from scratch, you know, how might I do it? <laughs> um, would I give more control to the local prosecutor? Would I have more control in the state-level prosecutor? And, and I, I tend more towards the local. Um, and, and the reason for that is just, I think it's a better knowledge base to make some of these decisions is in the communities that are most affected by it. So, you know, I think if you are in a rural area, you have different priorities than you do if you're in an urban one. And it should be up to each of those communities to decide how they want to do things. And, you know, as you take it up a level of generality, I think you get further and further removed from the preferences of the people who know the best. So, you know, I tend to be like that across issues. So, you know, that's kind of my general view on federalism too. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a generally a pretty good idea to let the states um, sort things out based on their different, there's lots of differences among communities in the United States. And so, so that's, I kind of lean in that direction, but I recognize, um, <laughs> there's, there's often good reasons to take things up a notch and, and have the, uh, a broader policy make some of these calls. But, um, but as a, As a matter of what is the law in jurisdictions today, um, in lots of states, that authority is there to push back on local prosecutors, and we're just going to see more of it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the local localist sort of instinct on a lot of issues, and maybe even here too. If I had to argue the other case, you know, the other direction, I suppose it would be that even within a locality, the people who were dissatisfied with the the judgments of the community, they're still the members of whatever the next level political organization is, whether it's the state, the count, the county, the state. Then this is the, just an echo of the same arguments we have with with federalism, right? On the one hand. We like that the states are laboratories of democracy. On the other hand, all the folks in a particular state who don't want to be part of that experiment I mean, they're they're Americans too, and and the question is, what's the role in that case of the federal government to, to to step in? So I think it is it is very challenging. I mean, one of the reasons why we're so glad that you're you're our guest today is I think the first piece I read of yours a decade ago was when you were studying eight uh, independent agencies or in as you said insulating agencies, and and so much of that just reflects or echoes these debates too, because even if it's it's not just a question of formal legal structures. It also is the norms and traditions kind of habits of the political system that can have as much of a role as any. And sometimes if the the norms and traditions and habits get out of step with the formal legal structures or vice versa, that's when you get these sudden disjunctures like we have right now, uh, when suddenly Governor DeSantis says, you know, I don't like what this prosecutor is doing. And wait a second, I have the legal authority to to change it. Anyway, that rambled on a bit longer than I, I meant it to. Um, Jace, why don't you go ahead?
2: Sure. Um, in preparing for this interview, I saw your article from, I guess, over 10 years ago about federalism and criminal law. And I was wondering if you could give us any insight as to whether the federal government has learned anything from this state practice.
1: Yeah, no. Uh <laughs> I, I would say the federal government keeps turning along, basically without taking stock of almost anything. Um, so you know it remains. And, and again, you know, the, there's some the, the one bright spot, I guess, in all of this is you know I I've equally criticized Republican and Democratic administrations on this front. They're just both terrible. Um, and <laughs> essentially, it, it doesn't matter who's in office, but the federal government just turns along, oblivious to kind of data or what works or what they should be focusing or prioritizing on. And, and, you know, DOJ does too much. Um, and they, uh, they don't really kind of pause to reconsider <laughs> some of the things we've been talking about, you know, are longer sentences effective? You know, are there other things we could be doing, um, that might be better strategies and approaches uh, like not a ton of that at the federal level. And so I think, um, And there's lots of reasons for that, um, and and including the fact that, you know, once you open your U.S. attorney's office in whatever district you're in, they have to do something. And so, you know, it's one thing when you have a U.S. attorney's office in a district like the Southern District of New York, where you're going to have some really complicated white-collar fraud cases that are going to be really tough for your local DA to bring. And, you know, you can kind of see the real federal advantage there. Of having this kind of specialized office, you know, when you have your U.S. Attorney's office and the shingle is set up in, you know, Nebraska, um, where you might not have the same kind of complicated security, they still have to do something. And so you you kind of ask yourself, well, what are the federal cases that are brought there? And that's where you start to get the dynamic of an office that what would otherwise be a drug offense that would never even cross the threshold or the radar of a prosecutor here in New York becomes a federal case in Nebraska, you know, because you got to get them to do something. And so, you know, what you see at the federal level is a lot of cases that are, are made into, uh, you know, make a federal case out of it. (laughs) They're made, it becomes a federal case because they have to do something. There's personnel there and, and you have a kind of weird setup of, you know, they're certainly not going to argue to shut those offices down. Um, it, it's almost like the military base closure dilemma where, you know, once they're there, they need a reason for existing. And the, they find a reason for existing and bringing cases that, frankly, would be perfectly suitable for a local prosecutor to bring, but they have to do something. So, you know, that's one reason that you kind of see the federal government churning along like always without paying much attention. And, you know, I think the other is we just have a lot of people who have been there for a long time invested in the idea that this is a good model. And so it'd be really hard to kind of take a step back and say, you know, what have we done? Um, This is, we shouldn't be doing this much. Um, That would take a lot. It would certainly take leadership at DOJ that really wanted to fundamentally change things. And given the kind of people who are appointed attorney general, I don't see that happening because you It's basically people who have been career prosecutors, career federal prosecutors. So they're pretty much kind of keep the ship going where it's been going. And so I think that's why we haven't seen very many changes.
2: Well, if you don't have hope for the federal level, Um, the end of your review of Emily Bazelon's book talked about some steps that local prosecutors could take. And one of them, you said they're going to have to tie their own hands and limit their own powers. Can you explain how that would work in a way that wouldn't just allow the next prosecutor to do the opposite?
1: Yeah, so I'm a big believer in, I like institutional changes as opposed to just, I'm running for office and let me tell you what I'm going to do while I'm in office. Um, cause that's not very lasting, you know? So, so if you had a prosecutor who ran on that platform we were talking about before that said, I, me personally, am not going to bring retail theft cases, um, That is the really temporary notion, right? Because you elect a new person who says, I am going to bring retail theft cases. And lo and behold, you know, that policy ebbs and flows based on who's in office. So I tend to think a better model or a better way of thinking about who to elect and what to focus on. Our prosecutors really want to change institutional structures. And, you know, so, for example, I think it's important um, if a prosecutor wants to run on an agenda that really focuses on what we've learned about crime and sentencing, uh, who comes out and says, I am against mandatory minimums. Um, Now, that's a tough one for prosecutors because they get a lot out of mandatory minimums because they give them a lot of leverage in plea bargaining negotiations, right? If you charge someone with an offense that has a mandatory minimum sentence, um, that sentence will be the defendant's sentence if they're convicted. And so, um, and there's nothing the judge can do about it. And so at the plea bargaining stage, you know, that's a lot of leverage because, the defendant has to really think, wow, if I take this case to trial and I lose, I am going to get that sentence. The judge will have no discretion. So it's a great tool for a prosecutor. And most prosecutors do not want to get rid of that tool. And even these progressive prosecutors don't want to get rid of it. It's just they'll say they'll exercise the tool better. They'll say, oh, I'm only going to use it you know, when I, it's important to do it or in certain cases. And so to my mind, the better strategy is to have a prosecutor who comes up and says, even though it would be helpful to me, in achieving my own personal agenda, mandatory minimums are terrible policy. They're just terrible policy, and we should just not have them. And even though they make things a little more difficult for prosecutors, um, we know they don't help with public safety, they increase racial disparities, um, they don't achieve what they were supposed to achieve. So I, as your prosecutor, I'm going to campaign against them. I'm going to urge the legislature to get rid of them. You know, I am not going to charge them if I can avoid it. You know, I'm going to I'm going to do everything I can to get rid of them and take them off the books. To me, that's, a, that's the kind of platform that's much more attractive to me personally in picking who I'd want to elect as a prosecutor because that will have lasting impact because if you are successful in getting mandatory minimums mm-hmm. off the books, it's much harder to bring those back, right? That's not just a, well, I'll elect a different person who has different policies. You'd actually have to get the whole legislature together to pass them again, signed by the governor, you know, go through the whole process. It doesn't mean it won't happen, um, but but it's harder. And so I like those kinds of institutional fixes. You know, another example would be... Um, Prosecutors' offices typically like the ability to weigh in on parole determinations or clemency determinations by the governor. So, like, they like to walk in there and say, not this guy, you know, don't do it for this guy, you know, don't do it for this person, Um, when the better policy is to say, we're terrible at this. We don't know anything about who should get parole or clemency because as soon as we prosecute a case, we don't pay any attention to that person ever again. Right. So we actually should step out of this arena entirely. We're the last person you should hear from. Um, And they don't like to do that. Right. Because what they want is to kind of keep the reins on that one and then come in and say, oh, here's the category of cases where we're going to come in and say, yes, give them parole. um, But not in this one or not in these kinds of things. And so they still want to typically keep that that authority but again that just means then when the next prosecutor is elected it all goes away whereas if you had a policy that said i am going to try to get the prosecutor taken out of this process entirely like just no more consultation that would have that kind of lasting impact so that's the sort of thing that i i prefer because i think it has that that broader institutional benefit to it that's much harder to get people to commit to doing though because you know you would be getting rid of your your own authority, as opposed to saying, I'd like to keep it, but I'm going to exercise it in this really great way.
0: Now, in terms of what the federal government can learn from the states in criminal law, you catalog that in the, the article that Jace alluded to a little earlier, and we'll link to that one in the show notes, too. I mean, it is hard to to translate state, as we said before, the experiments in these laboratories of states. It's hard to map those results one-to-one onto the federal government because it's different structures. It's just it's a country versus a state or a county. So it's even harder than I suppose to draw any lessons for non-criminal regulatory agencies at the federal level. Um And for what it's worth, the DeSantis-Warren dispute, it's not even really about governor power, you know, sort of a unitary executive theory. It really, it's more a dispute over uh, whether Governor DeSantis' particular reasons here violated violated the First Amendment. So with all those caveats, are there any lessons that we can draw uh, from these debates around prosecutors and prosecutorial discretion and the relationship to governors? Uh, Lessons we can draw for federal administration Beyond uh, the Justice Department,
1: I mean, I do think one of them is about money. Um, you know, so one of the reasons why I think the federal government sometimes runs uh, into directions that it shouldn't or kind of goes astray is that it um, it doesn't fully internalize all the costs of what we think of when we think of criminal punishment and criminal enforcement. You know, so for starters, the federal actors cherry pick the cases they want. Um, And they're not responsible for kind of the full range of crimes that are out there. So, you know, your local, your state, a state government is responsible for all the harms that occur within a state, right? It it doesn't, uh, they can't just say, no, we're going to let somebody else handle the homicides. um, And we're only going to focus on this kind of crime. But the federal government can, right? And not only can it, it kind of has to, because there's commerce clause limits on the kinds of things that federal prosecutors can actually even bring. And so that creates some really weird and perverse incentives, I think, for the federal government to have a really skewed perspective of what's truly serious and what isn't, because they're just looking at that limited group of cases that could even be brought federal in the first place. And then again because there's offices that have to do something they make bigger deals out of things that are just not big deals and if we were really thinking of our resources and how to best allocate them that is just not where we would be spending them and i think that's the key lesson that you can get from the states is so in a jurisdiction that is looking at the full range of harms that are occurring there how do they prioritize those harms like what are they thinking are the most important things to try to solve and how are they allocating authority and how to deal with it? And I think the kind of two lessons that come from that is states prioritize serious violent activities that um, lead to, you know, really tragic physical injuries, death, um, the, the greatest harm. Like, that is the top priority. Um, and the other lesson from the states is that they do tend to, or they have, and maybe we'll learn that that's going to shift, and that's been our whole discussion, but they have tended to let the variety of local communities within a state make those decisions for themselves, like to largely let each jurisdiction kind of, you know, figure out exactly how they want to focus their resources and allocate things. Um, And I think that'd be the lesson that I'd like the feds to take is, is thinking about how to, what to prioritize, um, but also to be a little bit more deferential to local actors on the ground instead of kind of stepping in and, um, and making a mountain out of a molehill in a community that would view it as a very small issue.
0: Maybe one last Thank question you. before we go, Rachel, um, you served on the U S sentencing commission for I guess, six years, five, six years.
1: Something like that. Yeah. Uh,
0: what, what was the, the biggest thing you learned from your experience there?
1: That was a surprisingly um, positive experience. And I say surprisingly only because, you know, when you read reports of our, government, there's a, I, I, at least for me, I have a tendency to think, oh gosh, it's dysfunctional everywhere. You can't break partisan gridlock. It's just, we've reached a point that's really terrible. And what was so nice about my time on the commission is that for, you know, for the most of the part uh, of the time I was there, we had seven members, four Democrats, three Republicans, and we had consensus on almost everything. And, and the reason we had consensus on almost everything was that we just looked at data and facts. And we tried to figure out, you know, what's the best approach to a particular issue based on empirical information that we know. (laughs) And, you know, that's the greatest cure for partisan gridlock, because, you know, you take an issue um, like, should we reduce drug sentences? And, you know, we the first thing we looked at is the commission had reduced crack sentences before we got there. And so we said, hey, let's see what happened when the commission did that, you know, Sentences were reduced, what happened? And you look at that data and you see, oh, this is amazing. Like, you know, recidivism doesn't go up, it doesn't affect the ability of prosecutors to get convictions, it's this like really great story of a uh, public policy success. So when we voted as a commission, we all felt really good about reducing sentences for all drugs because we had this really helpful study. Um, and then we made it retroactive because again, we could look and see what happened with the, the crack data. Um, and, and those were unanimous decisions. They ultimately allowed more than 30,000 people to uh, be released from prison on um, average two years earlier than they would have. And and we just had recidivism studies of that group. And lo and behold, same data, same same outcome, you know, really good public policy. So, so to me, it was like this great experience of working with really smart, wonderful, public spirited people who, despite their political differences, could all coalesce around good policies that... That benefited public safety and individual liberty Um, so it was great Um, you know it all fell apart at the end when uh, (laughs) we didn't have a quorum and the politics came back and you couldn't get people uh nominated or confirmed so i don't want to suggest it was completely um without political influence there uh but for the most of the time it was a it was a really great experience and it it is one of the reasons why you know i'm going to continue to beat the drum that says criminal justice policy is best made by looking at as many facts and studies as you can and will get better outcomes as opposed to politicizing it um because the politicization of these issues almost invariably leads to you know really bad policies both for safety and for individual liberty it's like the worst of all worlds
0: uh jace any last thought or question I was just going to
2: say that makes sense to me, um, looking at facts and data, as long as we have a common goal, uh, that does seem like it would yield the best outcomes. And you've been so generous with your time, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. And there's going to be a lot more to learn uh, as these debates keep going forward at the state level. Thank you. Yeah.
0: No, definitely. And we've mentioned a lot of articles you've written in your bio, a couple of things we hadn't mentioned yet. Uh, the two judges you clerked for. Uh on the DC circuit, you uh just for our listeners know Rachel clerked for Judge Larry Silberman, uh, who, among many other things, was the, the first recipient of the Gray Center's uh, Clarence Thomas Award last year. Uh but all this entire center exists in the Scalia Law School. And of course, Rachel, you have a connection to uh to Justice Scalia. I wonder, did did he reach out to you when you were appointed to the to, the, to the, the commission that he, he he thought had been unconstitutional?
1: <laughs> yeah, no. So, um, I did see him at some point thereafter, and, and I made the joke about how I huh. made the JV Congress because uh, that's what he referred to the right. the <laughs> sentencing commission as in his Mistretta decision. Is like it's like a junior varsity congress. And so I was like, you know, I made the JV team, <laughs> <laughs> and even though you might not respect it, I'm really excited to be on it. Um, and he was actually wonderful about it and laughed and uh, and thought it was all all good.
0: Well, that's really great. And and the last article of yours that we'll link in the show notes is actually the one that you wrote uh in his memory when he passed. Uh R- Rachel contributed to the Harvard Law Review Symposium on Justice Scalia. And and the title is The Ascent of the Administrative State and the Demise of Mercy. And I'd encourage everyone uh to read it, both for its connections to our conversation today and just for the the, the broader, the broader principles um at in the article so rachel thanks again for joining us today
1: oh thanks adam you know one tiny correction is that's a different piece than the memorial piece for justice uh, and i'm happy to have people read either or both but um uh, uh, just in case you want that slight, uh because i do have that one which is about uh how the administrative state leads the other things like clemency and prosecutorial discretion but then there's a separate one that's all about justice galida
0: Well, then our readers will just have to go click on it and find out what's in that one. All right. Find (laughs) the
1: choose-your-own-adventure.
0: Well, thanks again, Rachel, and thanks to our listeners, as always, for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters. Thanks, guys.
2: This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLossCenter.